Hello everyone, welcome to Mouth Off. This is the official podcast of heyyouguys.co.uk. My name is John Lyas. Joining me today, we have one of our writers on the site, Craig Skinner, and also Brendan Connolly from SlashFilm.com. Now, before we go into the show proper, I have to thank Craig publicly um, and Optimum as well for getting us two tickets to see uh, The Brothers Bloom, uh, which we saw this Monday. Um, we're not going to talk about the film now because it's not out um, for another few quite quite a long while i believe i think it's out in the uk um in june sometime early june and it's uh, june the 4th june the 4th okay and it's been out in america uh, it was out middle of middle of last year i think and it's already out on dvd and blu-ray out there uh, and people um certainly people in in online have really gone crazy for it so i was really looking forward to it and i have to say it was this is one of my favourite films I've seen for a long, long time. So Craig and I will talk about the Brothers Bloom when it gets um, when it gets closer to the release date because it was uh, it was really quite something. So that's something to look forward to uh, for the uh, for the early June podcast. Uh, the f- um, the three films we're going to talk about today we've each seen um, uh, kind of a different uh, different style of film this uh, this past week. The first one we're going to talk about is Splice, which is uh, Vincenzo's um, Natali's uh, latest film, which I think uh, did it premiere. Here, Craig, because you saw this, was it a premiere over here? Yeah, I think it played Fright Fest. Um, so I think it, I think it might be, I think it was Fright Fest in Edinburgh. So it's the first, or Glasgow. I'm okay. not sure whether. Fright yeah, Fest it is played at Fright Fest Glasgow. This is the English premiere, but the actual premiere premiere was at Sundance. Right. Okay. And I think it. I mean, it certainly generated a lot of buzz. So we'll go on to talk about that and uh, and the sort of circumstances in which you saw it, um, Craig. In a second, I'm then going to take um, Four Lions, which is uh, Christopher Morris's um, first uh, feature film, and it was just fantastic. So I'm going to talk about that for a bit, and then we're going to go on to the biggie, which is Iron Man Two. Brendan saw that, and he's going to give us all of the uh, all of the um, the news. Uh, and the reviews on that so um and then we're going to have a couple of bits of film news and then of course to finish off the show as always we have our ripped from the crypt section where we pull out uh, a film or a short which we like which we think you might like too so we're going to be uh, talking about that later so first things first splice now craig you saw this last night i believe give us a bit of an idea about where you saw it um and, uh, and what you thought of the film um yeah i saw it at the apollo cinema in piccadilly which um, is a deeply unpleasant experience, and I can recommend no one going to the Apollo unless they have some sort of special event there because the, the cinema was really, really unenjoyable. What was it? Um, was it like sticky floors and dodgy it projections? Was, uh, it's, it's a really weirdly designed cinema. That um, Yeah, it's just really strange. There was sound leaking from other screens, which just baffles me when it's a, you know, a pretty new cinema and really nicely put together, you know, in terms of spending lots of money on it. Um, it was really, really hot, painfully hot. <laughs> it's got like a really tiny corridor that leads you into the cinema so that any time it gets, and it, all four screens are right next to each other. So any time there's more than about 15 people, you'll get crammed in. Um, okay, well that sounds yeah. like an interesting time to see it then. Um. <laughs> Which it, it was, uh, yeah, it was an interesting experience. It started late as well, so um, a lot of people didn't seem too happy before the film, but... I think the film impressed most people, so people kind of cheered up as the film started. Okay, so this is um, a film from the guy who uh, directed Cube. Now, I don't know if many people have seen Cube. Um, I I saw this uh, relatively recently and, uh, and and really rather enjoyed it. We actually mentioned him um, on uh, on the show. Uh, his film, Nothing, was Brendan. Was that your rip from the crypt a couple of weeks ago or last week? Yeah, that was mine last week, actually, John. 
Okay. And they all blend into one, I have to say, after a while. Um, I don't get much sleep these days. but um, <laughs> um That was a film I think um, one of our other writers, Gary Phillips, has actually seen recently, and he really loved it. So um, the guy um, certainly has uh, has a lot of fun in playing around with sort of the high concepts. But um, tell us a bit about the film uh, that you saw, Craig, and what you thought of it. Um, well, yeah, it focuses on a couple uh, played by Adrian Brody and Sarah Polly who um, they're scientists and they're also wired cover uh, front page news. They're like the latest big science breakthrough people. They um, splice different DNA from different animals into each other, uh, creating these strange hybrids. And uh, they're trying to extract something from these hybrids that will potentially solve lots of different illnesses and diseases that there are. So um, what they're doing is considered quite important um and in typical uh b-movie way they go too far and um they create a human animal hybrid um which they're not supposed to be doing and it goes horribly horribly wrong horribly horribly in a good way wrong yes yes definitely um they i don't it's hard to know how much to say really i've i had a little look online to see what other people how much other people have been putting in their reviews and uh I don't know, I think people give a little bit too much away, but they're, cu- they're a couple and they have one or two conversations about the possibility of having children and this hybrid that they create kind of plays into this maternal and paternal instinct that they have and it goes in some really strange directions. Well, I mean, we put a, um, a new trailer up on the site just yesterday and I think there was one that was out uh, late last year and they're very similar in terms of what they do but the trailer we, we put on the site yesterday um, actually did give a little bit more away about the journey that this, that this uh, creature um, sort of went on and there are a couple of quite interesting shots because you, you see Sarah Polly and you see her reacting to um, the initial creation of this and then as time goes on you sort of see her sort of slowly warm to it and it doesn't take much to put two and two together and work out that, that that's going to become a factor but is it, is it quite an obvious um, uh, story or are there any twists that we have? I'd say it does go in different directions to that it's not that simple I would say that a lot of the... I really enjoyed the film and I thought it was really entertaining, but I do think in, re, in looking online at what other people are saying, there's been a lot of kind of hyperbole about the film, uh, saying it's, you know, the most inventive film of the year and saying it's twists and turns you could never guess. I actually found that although it did go in interesting different directions and wasn't necessarily what I was expecting straight at the start of the film, about halfway in I, I got a general gist of where it was going and what was going to happen. Why they? Why, why I wonder why, why people are bigging it up because I've heard quite a lot about it. And is it the fact that it's just an interesting concept, or is it in terms of the script, or, or you know, in terms of how far it goes? Well, I think it is a really good film, and I mean, it, it's a really good film, though a really good genre film. It takes a genre concept and it does it really well with a couple of interesting new angles. Well, not even new angles, but some interesting angles. It's got, I'd say, it's got like two jumps, two laughs two sh- moments of shock you know it's kind of got what it needs but i wouldn't say it really like wowed me but it was really solid really really solid genre film what was the reaction from uh, from the rest of the people there did they all enjoy it um seemed to yeah i had um someone quite interesting sitting in front of me oh who's uh, that john landis was sitting in front of me which was pretty cool 
Um, and he reacted quite noticeably during the film. I think I now want to watch every film in the cinema with John Landis uh, in, the, in the audience. <laughs> I've, I've sat behind him 20, 22 times in the cinema. <laughs> Seriously. We're not honestly um, stalking you. you know. um, uh, it was at Fright Fest last year, and it really was an incredible experience. He's the most vocal cinema goer I have ever, ever come across. Did he actually shout out words? He wasn't too bad. I've heard about his Fright Fest appearances before and about how he actually heckles the screen sometimes. And, and when they have directors turn up, he sometimes heckles them as well. But he didn't, he didn't actually shout anything out. But he was, um, yeah, he was kind of gesturing quite a lot. Uh, <laughs> making a kind of Did you get the impression he liked it? I don't know. It's, it's kind of hard to tell. There were a couple of moments where I got the impression he was loving it. And then there were a couple of moments where he seemed to be noticeably annoyed. But... Um, yeah, I mean, you know, every film has, well, not every film has its flaw, but most films have one or two flaws. And, uh, yeah, he was noticeably annoyed when it went down a route that was a bit obvious or, you know, something went a bit wrong. And what about you, Brendan? Are you, I know that you're a, a fan of the director here. Um, are you looking forward to this one? Oh, yeah, hugely. I mean, I would have been there last night, but for all sorts of um, biological circumstances, ironically enough. <laughs> yeah. But, um, I mean, I love this script when I read it back, back a couple of years ago now. I absolutely loved it back in 2007. And, and there were all sorts of really clever things I, I enjoyed. I mean, for example, what, what were the characters called in the film, Craig? What were their main names? The oh, first do you know? Name? Uh, um, is it, well, I mean, I, I'm actually... Clive and Elsa. Yeah. Right, and, that, and that's basically because they're the cast of James Wales' Frankenstein films. You've got, uh, you know, the... the Victor Frankenstein and the Bride of Frankenstein. The actor and the actress were called Clyde and Elsa, and then that leads you to understanding why she she got has Sarah Polly's character got a white streak in her hair. Um, no, I don't think so. Oh, because that was a huge plot point in the script, and that was one of my favourite things. I'm a unless, unless I really lost it, I don't. I don't remember having a white streak. No. It's really interesting because it was a moment in the script that when you read it on page, you know, two or whatever. You think it's just a sort of a nod towards the the James James Well Frankenstein movies, but later it became an instrumental plot point. Oh um, no, I don't think they kept that then because it, yeah, I don't, I certainly don't remember that. That's quite that's quite sad because because what what the implication was when that became a plot point was one of the most challenging things in the script. Oh, I'm really going to have to go and see it now. Okay, well, when you do, let, let, let us know what, what you think of it, because it's the kind of film that I think, um, I'm not sure how well it's going to do. I'm not sure how, how they're going to market it, but I think um, it sounds like a, kind of an interesting film that, that you should go and see. Um, I, I think it's going to do fine, to be honest. It, it costs about $25, 26000000 million, I think, which okay. isn't, isn't a massive amount to make back, I don't think. I reckon it's going to do solidly in the States, and uh, I think it'll do pretty well over here, as long as they don't push it back too far. Okay. Well, that sounds like. I mean, obviously, yeah, I mean, it's just. I mean, if you, if you're looking for a decent film to see on a Friday night, a genre film, it's perfect. It's just, you know, it didn't. I didn't find it taxed me much. It didn't make me think. It didn't. So it didn't really engage with the sort of ethical issues at the heart of. of it, it did, but I don't know. I kind of felt it was a bit surface, really. But not, not. I mean, I don't mean this really as that much of a criticism. I think it's, it's pretty solid, but. 
it that stuff definitely wasn't superficial in the script. And it sounds like that's one of the main parts of it. I mean, obviously I haven't seen it and I haven't read the script, but looking at it from what I, from what I saw, it, it seems like the, the director's got to make a, a choice. Is it going to go down the more ethical line or is he going to just look at the fact that it's kind of a horror film and just sort of have the ethical be just a, you know, a very small part of, uh, of, the, of the narrative? I think, well, I think it does, it goes down the ethical route 100% and it goes down a really weird, um, not... I don't know. It's not exactly eatable, but a uh, kind of that sort of route, and um, it just didn't do that in a way. I don't think that made me necessarily think too much. I think it was reasonably obvious and not anything that I don't know. Just seem, it didn't seem that deep, even though it was there, which I really appreciated. And it's nice to see a film like that where it is there at least. But it didn't. I mean, it it didn't. I didn't walk away from the cinema thinking about the ethics too much. Okay. Well, I mean, it sounds like it's it's going to be a kind of a solid addition to the uh, to to the guy's filmography, and it's it, it's nice to see that he's doing a different thing. It's also nice to see a, a horror film that isn't a remake or a sequel, because of course we've got Nightmare on Elm Street coming out, and news of all the latest you know Scream trilogies coming out. So it's actually pretty nice to see someone doing something different with it. I'm always a very big fan of of people who, even though they're making a genre film and it's maybe not something that's completely original, do try and have you know a bit of a uh, of a unique identity and do something different, um, you know, with the horror, with the horror genre. I mean, I, I enjoyed um, uh, what was the film that I saw. Obviously, let you know, let the right one in was a really good take on the on the whole vampire thing. I enjoyed um, Orphan as well. I thought that was uh, that was quite fun and, and quite silly. And Drag Me to Hell, you know, again, these are these are films that have that have their roots in the genre and did interesting things with them, and they did them quite well. So it sounds like that's going to be um, that's one of these. Yeah, okay. I, th- I think that's a pretty good description, actually, to be honest, John. And I think um, most people, your average cinema-going audience, not you know, not to stereotype too much, but I mean that uh, your average cinema-going audience is probably going to be reasonably impressed with it. And I think walking out of the cinema, I heard a lot of people saying, oh, my God, I can't believe how messed up that was. You know, oh, that bit was crazy. Like, that film's insane. Oh, I need a stiff drink after seeing this. Seriously, <laughs> it's not like Antichrist insane, though. It's more sort of like no. confined, okay. Uh, I mean, it's funny you should say that because that that was a film that really came to mind when I was watching it. Actually, Antichrist. There's something to do with the, I don't know, the couple, and they they go out and well, I don't want to give too much away, but they're at a farm at one point, and it it did remind me a little bit of a couple going into the woods. But I yeah, I think um, I don't know if maybe I've just become desensitized, but I it didn't seem that messed up to me really. But I mean, if you normally just watch, I think those kind of scream or. Nightmare on Elm Street remake, it probably might seem pretty messed up, to be honest. Okay, so that... I think as well, two two other things that came to mind when I was watching it, which, if you like that sort of thing, is going to, I think, recommend it, is um, it reminded me a lot of the Masters of Horror um, TV series yeah, yeah. that was on. And also it reminded me a hell of a lot of Fringe, which I'm not sure if either of you have seen. I've not seen that. Brendan, have you seen that? Mm. Yeah, okay. I don't see it. From what I know about Splice, I'd be interested to see if I make that I mean, connection. It, it didn't remind me in terms of, like, uh, Fringe is more, I suppose, police procedural a little bit because they're investigating each mm. month, each week. And it doesn't have that investigation at all, but just the, I don't know, a little bit of the Fringe Creature of the Week kind of feeling. Um, but done very well and, you know, okay. to a higher standard. But yeah, it, it, it's reminiscent. Just... If you like that, I think this will be your cup of tea as well. Okay, well, I mean, it, it sounds like um, it sounds like we're slagging it off, and I'm sure that we're not. I, th- I think it's more a case of um, no, no. I mean, all the, I mean, all of this in a good way, but yeah, I yeah. Just, 
There's just something about us tonight, isn't there, fellas? We just sound like we're just sort of trodging along. Let's get the end. Come on, yeah, we like movies. Yeah. Okay. In that case, it's, let's move yeah, on. It's weird to be honest. Like, yeah, it's. I kind of want to go. Yeah, it's great, but I, I find it so hard when I read online the kind of hyperbole that comes up about films like this, and I just think, oh, if you read that, you might be a bit disappointed. But it's actually really good. <laughs> In that case, just you know, if, if if you listen to the you know to, to the podcast and you're not sure or not to go for it, then yeah, it gets our thumbs up. So that's uh, so that's great. In in terms Ooh, of yeah, yeah and and that there's Brendan doing the... <laughs> two thumbs up. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to move on now. Thanks for that, Craig. Um, a film that I saw just last night again. Um, was a film that I've been looking forward to for a long, long time. It's the first film from Chris Morris, who UK um, and uh, hopefully the wider world will will know him as the as sort of brains behind things like the day to day and Brass Eye. Um, and this is his first feature, and he's been working on it for a long time. It's called Four Lions. Now, uh, when it was announced that this film was going to be his first uh, feature film, it was um, it was uh, controversial uh, and and typical of Chris Morris. He was going to do um, a a comedy about jihadi uh, and terrorists, and um, you know immediately people thought, well, instantly, well, how on earth can you find anything funny in that? And he does it, and he does it in such a way that you know will it will move you and it will make you think you know a bit more about the situation that we're living in now there's a lot of commentary on on you know on the police on on you know on race and religion um but actually first and foremost it is a really really funny comedy to give a brief outline of um, of the story, because uh, it is a relatively simple one, there is a guy um, called Omar who is played by uh, Riz Ahmed, who's in um, he's been in uh, a TV show over here, a TV miniseries called Brits, which was a really really fantastic um, uh, program. It was just on for two nights, and it was it was it was just timed really right, talking about um, you know sort of like racial tension and uh, and sort of the shadow of terrorism. So he plays uh, a guy called Omar who is disillusioned with uh, the treatment of Muslims within the UK, and he wants to fight back. He wants to you know create um, a terrorist incident. You know he's going to blow himself up basically, and he's got. Um, three friends uh, that he has sort of you know grown up with and he's kind of convincing them to go off and uh, and sort of you know become martyrs and it pretty much is his journey from the very first uh, you know shot to the to, you know to the very last and um, the characters that he surrounds himself with um, are you know stupid insane kind of reluctant um, and it's him uh, his struggle is kind of I really want to do something special, and I, and he believes that in, in in doing all of this, he is taking these these sort of three or four guys to to heaven, um, you know, by by sort of you know blowing themselves up, and yet at the same time he's got a real love for them because they're you know they're part of his family, they're part of um, the people he grew up with, and he doesn't want them to die. So there's this really wonderful, uh, and it does become very moving um, as the sort of film progresses, um, you know, sort of a challenge for for, for Omar and. Um, uh, some of the scenes you may have seen on the trailer. If you haven't seen the trailer, do check it out because it gives a really, really good indication of the of, of the level of comedy within this. And it's been pushed as a comedy film as well. Um, there are a lot of um, really funny moments where you just have Omar and he's trying to do something really important, and you have his his friends really, really muck it up just by being incredibly stupid. Do you know what I mean? Because the whole point about this, I think, from what Chris Morris was trying to do, is he was trying to say there's a um, a very heavy element of farce um, within within this this sort of um, this this notion of, of being a jihadian um, or a jihadist and uh, 
basically, I think what he's trying to say is that these are these are these are people doing this. They're they're, they're not you know insane um, soldiers. They're just you know a bit silly and a bit crazy. And there's a lot of um, it, I think he likened it in, in in the notes to something like um you know a football team where there's a lot of rivalry. There's kind of infighting and people um you know uh, the the you know it is like a normal male you know group. Um, and, and everything that kind of comes along with it. What I was surprised about when I when I saw the film is that there's a lot of moments in it because it, it obviously is quite a bleak um, subject, and there are moments of fast that just cut into this bleakness, um, and it makes it all the more hilarious. I mean, it really, really is funny, but at the same time, he he earns every single laugh because the subject matter and the way that he deals with it is so uh, is so serious, and it is is kind of you know it's respectful of of the religions and, and the races involved. And he does it with a really deft touch in, in no way is anything rammed down your throat. But there are moments like a crow blowing up or, you know, um, a guy tripping over a sheep and blowing up, um, which are shocking to you. And you see them and, and, and you have like a, a, you know, a real gut reaction to it. Um, but then there are, you know, equally there are movement, uh, there are moments that really, really move you. Um, and uh, it's it, it, it kind of, you know, it really impressed me. And it wasn't exactly the film that I was expecting to see, um, but it shows something really special from, you know, from Chris Morris. And I'm, I'm a big, big fan of his. And I think that if you know his work, you will be, um, you will be surprised by what you see here. Um, but actually, when you think about what he's done, it's, it's, it's a real logical continuation because he is respectful of, of, of the subjects that he deals with, but also he sees the world. It's, it, he, I've always thought he's a bit like David Lynch and Oscar Wilde kind of combined because he has, he's, he's a satirist and you know a surrealist kind of all in one, but he's just so damn funny. And, uh, and those moments really, really come out. So uh, it's, it's, you know, I, I, re- I really, really enjoyed it. I'm not sure how it's going to go down here. It hasn't created kind of firestorm of controversy, which I thought it would do. Um, but let's, let's open this up. Uh, Craig, have you, uh, are you a fan of Chris Morris? Are you planning on seeing Four Lions? Uh, 100%. Yeah, I absolutely love Chris Morris. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, he's, you're right. He's just so funny. I mean, even when he's doing something that just seems on the surface quite stupid or surreal it he just seems to have just an amazing talent for making it funny um and yeah four lines really really appeals to me i think the slapstick that there seems to be in it as well <laughs> i actually quite like slapstick so i'm quite looking forward to that and uh I, I one thing i did want to ask you is it as satirical as it kind of could be um yeah some of the some of the satire is unusually heavy-handed just in just in moments, in, in terms of the consequences of of actions that that are taken, but there are, it's kind of um, very well uh, very well played by all of the four you know the sort of the five or uh, the four or five main guys in it. They um, they play really well, but it's uh, it's it's kind of um, it's it's kind of done in in almost like a a Mike Lee fashion in in the sense that you've got very very normal conversations going on and the the references that that they use are intrinsically british and it's it's you know that and that's that's played for comedy but it's also played for you know for sort of you know real biting satire as well um so uh, i kind of hope that I, yeah I, I think that some some of the satire is kind of heavy-handed but um it's it, it only works because there are moments i mean for example omar has um has a family he's got this young this young son and his wife and they're you know they 
are leading a normal family life and it's 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 so weird to see and to hear these people talk in a situation that you know so well you know in terms of the family um and to talk about things like are you going to blow yourself up and um and there's a really good um i'm not going to spoil it too much but the bedtime story that that omar reads to his son is um is right on the nose and it's it just it really really you know without going over the top it really puts up the juxtaposition of this complete normality in this consumerist society and this real desire to make a difference and to, and, and to kind of bring it down. It's um, it's just really, really well done and really, really well written. Brendan, what about you? Are you a fan of Chris Morris? Well, I was. Um, I think Nathan Barley is just pathetic. Um, I've not seen Nathan Barley and I, I've, I've heard similar things. It, it's weak. It's, just, it's, it's, it's real weak. Um, and that was his collaboration with uh, Charlie Brooker. And Charlie Brooker can sometimes just take the easy option and just sling a bit of mud and not really think about what he's doing. So, uh, um, you know, it wasn't a it wasn't a useful collaboration. I'm hoping that this film uh, goes beyond that. I mean, his co-writers here mm. are uh, Bain and Armstrong, yes. um, who, uh, you know, Peep Show and um, In the Loop and The Thick of It. And I think they're much more capable. Mm. Um, it's interesting to see... Um, I mean, to me, looking at the trailer, what I'm picking up is like a bit, a sort of vibes of like, funnily enough, Spinal Tap. Because, you know, Spinal Tap, you've got a group of people who are all just a little bit, they don't quite know how, how absurd or silly they are and how faulty their logic is, you know, mm. when they end up, you know, folding over the, the meat and the bread over and over and over again. I mean, the, the scenes we see of them sort of, you know, swallowing SIM cards or trying to put bombs on crows and the like seem to be rooted in the same sort of like, you know, they're a little community of, of people who aren't quite as clever as they need to be to do what they're trying to do. And that reminds me of uh, that reminds me of a Spinal Tap. And of course, there's also some sort of um, uh, you know, it's also reminiscent in, in some way of of uh, sort of a Dad's Army sort of feel to me in, in a way as well, which is um, interesting because I mean, politically, it couldn't be more different, could it? Mm. I'm, I'm very very hopeful. I'm very hopeful, and um, I'm doing exactly what I, I, I was complaining about earlier. I sound like I'm about to fall asleep. So, woo, yeah, I think <laughs> Four Lands is going to be awesome. <laughs> I think that when Brasso is coming out, it was you know transformative television. I hope that Four Lions is a film in which the debates are important and, and might actually shift some cultural water. You know? Yeah, and I mean, it's interesting you bring up the Spinal Tap comparison because it would be like that, uh, but for the character of Omar, who is this sort of normal sane if you like sane sane mind within it with with within the sort of group because he is the one that can that can see how ridiculous it is and he is the one who is trying to you know get them away from putting bombs on crows and it, it you know part of it is a is just the the farce of these people who um, who have no idea what they want to do. They they talk about you know what are we going to blow up and they, their their logic is so twisted and, and and backwards and their ideas are so silly and and, and funny. Um, but but he is the guy that is kind of the emotional heart of it and um, and he is the one sort of you know that that you follow and that you lead on um, and pay most pay most attention to. So um, without him, I think he would be Spinal Tap. But with him, I, I think it's something different. So importantly though, right? He still believes in the suicide bombing mission yeah he is the one that that, that that you know he's the one that gets them to go to Pakistan to do the training camp this is very early on in the film so there's not much of a spoiler um, but he is the one who is uh, dedicated to it while, whereas the others really just don't really so, have a clue what's going on in, in a sense he's the one that's radicalising them 
yeah, but again, um, as as sort of things play out, he um, he also has the most to lose. So it's, it's it's his character is really really interesting because you don't know whether to because you kind of want him, you know, you, you you never want him to 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 carry out what he what he's going to do. But at the same time, you sort of you know see his passion and sort of see these these other other guys. So it really plays with you. But it's um it is right. really Did, really good. Is, is there any sense that you want them to succeed? Because in watching the trailer, there was part of me that almost it had the kind of the feeling of a film where a load of bumbling idiots are trying to do something and there's part of you that almost wants them to do it. Yeah. But I obviously don't want anyone to blow anyone up, but I was wondering if I thought that would be a very clever piece of satire if you kind of almost willed them to succeed. Um, I think that there is a little bit of that early on. I'm obviously not going to spoil what happens, but um, when 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 things sort of play out and, um, and, and in terms of how it, it all ends... There's, um, you never ever think at any point during this, um, a that they can succeed. I think that that's a really important point because they are so stupid. They really haven't got a clue what they want to do. But the the relationships that they build up or that are, that are, that are evoked throughout um, the film make you really not want them to succeed. If you know what I mean. So um, I think that the trailer is, you know, putting out this, uh, you know, a film by Chris Morris. Here's the kind of craziness and and the and and the silliness. Um, and it actually kind of draws you in, but you'll, you'll, you're in for a much better film. You're in for a much more touching film, you know, than was expected. So, um, so that's that, that's that's um, that's Four Lions. That's actually out. Let me just check when Four Lions is out. Seventh of May. Okay, so that's next week in the UK. I'm really hoping it does well because we've had things like In the Loop, um, that you know, that, uh, that has come out and, and, and done pretty well. So, let's hope. Let's hope that this one's going to be good as well. Um, okay. That's it. Those are the slightly smaller films um, that we're going to be discussing this week. Brendan, you have the the honour um, and privilege of talking about Iron Man 2. Um, this is, of course, John Favreau's follow-up to the film. I think 2008 was the first one. Uh, to me, it was a surprise that it was that it was good, um, the, the first Iron Man, and I think to a lot of people as well. Um, tell us about uh, Iron Man 2 is it is it a step up from from Iron Man and uh, do you think that it uh, that it deserves the um, the response that it's got from uh, from the internet community this week? What response has it got? It's been a bit mixed as far as I can see. Some people really like it, some people don't. I know the tabloids in Britain really ripped it ripped it a hole. Um, I'm not I'm not quite sure really what the consensus is if there if there indeed has been one. Um, Maybe uh, maybe we can have a look at the Rotten Tomato score. Though they were a week away from release in the states, and so there may not be many reviews. But um, let's forget the reception. I think. Uh, um, sorry, sorry, Brendan, to interrupt. I think Metacritic maybe gave it like a fifty-two or something. I seem to remember. I'm not one hundred percent that, so it's but kind it's of a mixed, a mixed response. Um, well, I mean, okay, fair enough. Uh, if I were to score it a percentage, well, you know what, we'll do that at the end. I think it's I think it's quite good. I think it's a little bit better than Iron Man, um, in the sense that I rather enjoyed a lot of the interplay and character business in Iron Man. But there were certainly great swathes of it in which it was fairly rote action sequences. And the last section, you know, everything that was interesting about Obadiah Stane and, and Tony Stark wasn't there. They were just two CG things hitting each other, and there were some some bizarre staging and some, some really weird stuff going on in Iron Man that really really made the last half an hour a bit of a chore for me, I think. Well, let's say last 20 minutes, a bit of a chore for me. Um, but there was stuff earlier on that I thought was interesting, you know, the the, the, the comments on, on the place of an arms dealer, um, some sort of political perspectives. I think Iron Man 2 succeeds 
more so. Um, there's more colour. There's more interesting business. It's a little bit less predictable. The action sequences still feel relatively standard. You know, they may be inventive in terms of what goes on, but they're they're staged and executed in in a sort of a relatively typical uh, Hollywood second unit fashion. Um, I don't think there's anything. Uh, I don't think the film ever, in any way, ever really hits a high peak, apart from you know little bits of performance and and what feel like very natural pieces of dialogue in places which may be improvisation but it it's you know it's an entertainment I certainly wasn't bored I liked it more than the first one I've got questions about what some of it seems to mean um, and, and, and whether it actually is as critical of Tony Stark as I personally am um, but uh, it's a recommend it's a soft recommend uh, why does it matter people are going to go and see it anyway this is going to be the most successful film of the year I'm sure only Toy Story 3 has a chance of making more money than this. I think you could be right, but of course this is um, one of the things that I've, I've read a lot about the film in the last couple of days is that uh, it has got, um, obviously you know, the Avengers is coming up and, and Marvel are doing an awful lot in terms of the rest of their, their properties all kind of coming together. Did any of it in any way feel like it was setting out for, for, for bigger things? Well, yeah, but that wasn't what the only thing that was going on in those scenes. I mean, for example, there's a scene quite quite near the end of the film where it's clearly about set up for for an Avengers plotline, but actually at the same time, there's things going on that are paying off earlier things in the thrust of this plot and setting up things in the subsequent scenes here. So, you know, I mean, there's not any scene that you could sort of remove yeah. and just sort of say, you know, you don't need it. It was all Avengers. Um, and it is relatively well well plotted. I mean, there's not any great twists and turns, but but things, you know, night follows day and, and, and we go back to night again, you know. It makes a certain amount of sense. And what about, like, the additions to the cast? Because one of the things that I'm really looking forward to are people like, um, you know, Sam Rockwell and, uh, you know, Mickey Rourke. Yeah, I mean, Sam Rockwell and, and Mickey Rourke are, are tremendous. Of course they are. Um, I, I think, you know, there's nothing, there's no surprise. Rourke's role is rather underwritten. He's not got a great deal to do. It's important, mm -hmm. but the majority of what he does is to, uh, you know, some of his key decisions are off screen and are therefore commented upon by other characters who are now acting. You know, he, he he's sort of he's not the most proactive character in the film while while he's in scenes, if you know what I mean. Um, and then at other times he's just said to be a bit of muscle, um, but. But he, he does a great job with it, um, particularly in the, in the sort of setup for the character at the start. You can understand absolutely why they wanted Mickey Rourke, or indeed probably how Mickey Rourke shaped shaped the way that the character w w was going to be seen and, and, and read. Um, uh, on the other hand, Sam Rockwell's got uh, an awful lot more material, certainly an awful lot more dialogue to work with, and he does something uh, in the vein of being a sort of a... a a counterpoint to Tony Stark. He's he's interesting in that. I mean, we know Favreau potentially could have cast Sam Rockwell in the Tony Stark part, and, and apparently screen testing. And this is a sort of like a bizarro universe version of the same same character. And it's interesting. You think the film would explore the similarities and differences between them a little more? They're kind of there, and some of these thematic ideas are there for the taking. But the film doesn't really doesn't really want to grasp them as often as you as you would hope. There's a there's a great film about uh, about various ethical and political issues waiting to be made. Uh, 
that follows exactly this plot with exactly these characters, and this just kind of wasn't it. That's what I really enjoyed about the first one, because I actually watched the first film relatively recently, um, and uh, I really was, you know, allowed myself to pay attention to, to what was being said in terms of the politics, in terms of the ethics, and it was just really interesting to see this kind of a film being able to bring that on board. Um, Craig, what about yeah. you? Go on, Brendan. Because I think there's about the same amount of that material. Mm. It just runs towards the end this time, whereas it got cut off early last time. But I just think there's a great film of insight. I think it's bringing it to the table and then and then not quite serving it up. Do you know what I mean? Sure. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, like... Uh, I kind of get what you mean John about the first one but I'm not sure if, if I really thought it did something good with the politics I think yeah I mean I found it a little bit uncomfortable the although I like I really enjoyed the first one I too watched I watched it this weekend um, and I think I maybe enjoyed it more than the first time round because I think the first time round although I was enjoying it I did find the politics a bit kind of troubling and not kind of took away from the fun a little bit which is I don't know. But that's uh, why I enjoyed it, because it, it, it kind of allowed you to... to it, it was just a bit more. It could have been just your ordinary superhero film, but this was a bit, you know... This, it, it had something extra, and, and well, you're, you're exactly right. It did... It, well, put it this way. It's not as critical of... It's not... It doesn't... It doesn't hold Tony Stark up as the jackass that he really is. Do you know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. I mean, you t- want it to sort of skewer him a bit more. Mm. It does, in, in some ways, almost celebrate... That and, and make it seem incredibly and you know cool and intoxicating this kind of world that he's living in. I mean, he he does struggle with it within the first film. But what I was looking for, or what I was hoping for, for you know, for Iron Man two, was to kind of keep that um, keep that alive. Maybe move that on a little bit. Maybe discuss it a little more. Not to get to any particular end, but just because it's kind of an intriguing part of uh, it's an intriguing part of his character. Yeah, I mean, it's he's just not, not very sharp. sharp. That, right. That's all. It's there. It's just not sharp. But you know, uh, things things blow up, and I'm sure the special effects look good. Um, you know, and that's that's just as important, I think. Uh, it, uh, it's a soft recommend. If you like Iron Man, I would hope you'll like this one. Um, if you're interested in things in Iron Man that I was interested in, then you'll probably like this one a little bit more. Okay, that sounds great. Well, we're actually going to move on now from our film reviews. Um, thanks for those opinions, guys. We're going to move on to um, a story. Craig, you want to talk about this? Because this, this kind of runs on quite nicely from, from what Marvel are doing uh, you know, with Iron Man 2. Tell us a bit more about the news item you want to talk about. Well, yeah, I just wanted to talk a little bit. And I, I suppose it's as much asking Brendan a few questions as well without giving too much away. But uh, talk about the way that Marvel seems to be kind of building a world. Uh, maybe a Marvel universe, I think, probably a better phrase. Um, that all these films are linking together, and certainly, apart from obviously the franchises like Spider-Man and X-Men that aren't going to link in, we've got this whole Avengers world where all the characters and all the films are going to mix up together in very much the same way that I think Marvel runs their comics, and they have a universe where all the characters fit in, and then they have other universes where other characters fit in. Um, but I find it really strange the way they're doing it because the films aren't actually running in the order that they're being released. And I'm a little bit confused as to how that's going to play across to a regular audience in the same way that when I, being at the comic shop, uh, my local comic shop a lot, and seeing people walking in and staring at the shelves and just obviously being confused because if you're not kind of within that world, a lot of it doesn't make sense. If you just pick up a comic... Uh, any Marvel comic these days, if you pick it up, it won't make any sense to you unless you've read the other comics that tie into it, you've read the previous issues. 
And I, I wonder if these films are going to start to get like this and Marvel are going to have to do some sort of reset button at some point. And, uh, I, I think the, the worry you've got comes from the fact that the Hulk film is chronologically set after Iron Man 2, though it was released two years ahead. But the only indicator of this chronology in the Hulk film is the Tony Stark cameo. It's not the main thrust of the film at all. So if you were to put like legs of a table and the Hulk leg goes up one side, the Thor leg up another, the Iron Man leg up another, and the, the uh, Nick Fury leg up the other, each film released is higher on that leg in sequence of release. So they're not going to do a Hulk film that predates the last Hulk film. They're not going to do an Iron Man film that predates the last Iron Man film. But the next Thor film may predate Iron Man 2, or it may run parallel to it, because the Iron Man component of it is only going to be a subplot. So I don't think anyone's really going to get confused. Um, in fact, I, I, I really think most people won't they'll be passive enough that they won't work out or care what order they were in. And the fact that the Tony Stark cameo in, uh, in Hulk takes place after Iron Man 2, they won't even notice. It will mean nothing to them. Mm, I wonder as well about the... I, I mean, I, yeah, again, probably best... I don't want to kind of push you into revealing any spoilers, but I think Captain America intrigues me as well, because obviously the new Captain America film is going to be set in the 40s. But I've heard there's a lot of allusions to it in the new Iron Man film as well. Well, okay. The spoiler-free version of this is that the Captain America film will take place in the 40s for much of its running time, but not all of its running time. And if anybody knows the character of Captain America, he ends up being frozen for for a very long period of time. Um, so that's how he's sort of bypassing, you know, decades. Um, but that's the beginning of Captain America, and the sort of little joke about Captain America in Iron Man 2 it's never here nor there it doesn't matter I mean it's just literally a throwaway joke it doesn't matter whether it's before or after or what or does it you know it just doesn't make it doesn't no one's going to be confused in the slightest because you cannot pin this particular joke to any sort of meaningful chronology anyway see, see that really upsets me then no no it doesn't really upset me I've overstated that far too much but that kind of disappoints me because then that kind of means that the link-ups between them isn't really that strong, and that perhaps it doesn't really matter that they're all... Well, then the the link-up's yet to happen, and the link-up happens with the Avengers film. That's where they link up. See, that's Mm. what I was going to say, because, I mean, to me, I I don't know about the comics at all. I just know about the films, and I know that there's going to be, uh, you know, allusions and references to other characters within the universe, but my understanding was, um, and, and this is the way I think it should be, each film should exist within its own world if you like um, and it should be uh, it's, it's, its own film that doesn't rely on anything else and when you hear uh, of another character and when you see maybe a cameo from someone you just think oh okay that's that, that's that person from, from Captain America and it's, it's, it's only going to be um, uh, just you know a very very um, almost like a callback to the, to the other films it, it, it will be a nod as opposed to intrinsic plot details that that, that kind of pull everything together because it doesn't seem like it's it's really worth it. I think if you've got this universe you know, with these characters, then the Avengers film, which will bring these things together, will just be a consequence of of what happened, you know, before the Avengers film. Won't won't necessarily have to have plot points from Iron Man two or the Hulk. You won't have to have them all kind of colliding as one because that. You know, but they will. They all collide at that point. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It yeah. only matters if they collide at that point, and that's actually the plan, and that's actually the practice. Exactly. And, so, but you're going to have um, a Captain America film that, that will, of course, end up with with maybe one of the two, you know, one of the plot points, you know, 
ending itself within the Avengers. But do you think that it is um, a case that each film is is being completed on its own terms, and the Avengers film will just bring them all together and it'll go off from there? Oh, one hundred percent. That's it, and that's that seems to be like the logical way of doing it, really. That's all you can do when you've got different creative teams. I mean, things like the button on the end of Iron Man 2, the button, the quote, button, which is like the post-credit scene, which incidentally, I was in a very full auditorium and everybody left during the credits, which is going to show you what percentage of the audience for these films are the sort of people who lurk around the internet. Um, uh, no one stayed to watch it. When did you, so, Brendan, where, sort of, Brendan, where did you see this? Because... Um, for, I know that it's a lot of general release today, John. It's out in cinemas. Oh, so sorry, you, you actually saw it today. I, I didn't know because we I, um, we had a, a press screening of it, and um, and there was no post credit sequence. So I didn't know if there was a um... right. Yeah, there is a post credit sequence. I'm not going to say what it is, cool. but um, had it been in the body of the film, um, it may have been problematic. Actually, it, it, I mean, it, I mean, it ties in in no way to the plot of the film, only in a really meaningless way, and it ties in. I would imagine, in a very meaningful way, into the plot of one of the other films. And I'm not going to say which one, but it's obvious which one when you when you see it. And it's the film that I think, out of the set, is the odd one out. I've just blown it now. But I do think yeah, there's one yeah. out of the set. I think there's <laughs> one out of the set which is the odd one out. And I think it's going to be a real hard sell for people, that one. Despite the fact that I think you've got an incredibly talented director and a very interesting cast, I think people might not swallow that one. Okay, well, that's going to be really interesting because that you know, I, I, that that's kind of my thoughts on, on on this particular film, which we shall not name in case people haven't worked it out. But um, we'll talk more about that when we find out more about that. So let's um, because we're kind of running a bit long. Let's let's leave Marvel and everything else uh, for a while. Brendan, um, one of the things that you want to talk about, um, you've given me three D, two D. Explain a bit more about what you want to talk about, and we'll just talk all right. About it and see what okay, happens. last week we kept hearing about a bunch of films that we were expecting to be released in 2D were now being taken back into the shop and given a lick of 3D paint and they were going to come out as post-production dimensionalizations, a la Clash of the Titans. And the two big high-profile films we heard this about were Green Hornet, which is Sony's big Christmas time film, now put back to January, but their big sort of end-of-year winter film, uh, a comic book tentpole, um, and the other one, Last Airbender, which is um, a big summer number, right? Uh, from M. Night Shyamalan. Um, and, and pretty much immediately, uh, the internet went boo hiss. And then the echo of that, reflecting back off of the sort of the Hollywood Hills, were people associated with the films running out and saying, oh, no, no, but we meant to do that. Uh, and then the, the counter echo was like, yeah, right, sure you did. Um, in the case of Green Hornet, Seth Rogen, who stars in the film, co-wrote the film, and indeed, and this is important, is one of the film's producers, uh, said, no, no, we, we we had ideas to do it in 3D, and now we've just been given the opportunity. Oh, bless. Uh, and then Frank Marshall, uh, producer of Last Airbender, said, no, 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 these signs, these action sequences and, and, and um, set pieces were, were devised with, with 3D in mind. And... Um, um, you know, it was all supposed to happen that way, and it was like, yeah, sure, Frank. Um, it, I, I don't buy it. I don't buy it at all. Now, the best case scenario is that Michel Gondry and M. Night Shyamalan are going to be involved, and they're going to work the 3D brilliantly, and the conversion is going to be done well, and these films aren't going to be terrible. Mm. 
Mm. Um, worst case scenario is that we've got Clash of Titans Parts 2 and Part 3 on our hand. Even worse, actually, because these are films by very talented and capable directors. So, you know, the thing that really sort of gets to me about these producers rushing out to defend these conversions is that we suspect they're lying. And actually, a lot of the time, we're, we're just told barefaced lies by studios and producers. And remember all the casting stuff about the A-Team last year? Bradley Cooper, definitely not in the A-Team. Ten minutes later, Bradley Cooper's in the A-Team. And I think we get lied to by them an awful lot. And I think it sort of makes a lot of sites like Hey You Guys and Slash Film look a bit stupid at times to people who aren't fully informed. Because we'll run a story and then there'll be a complete denial afterwards. And it's like... But I know my source was brilliant. And it's actually caused me problems because if I can't cite a source now, sometimes I can't run a story at Slash Film because they're not happy to get those negative associations. Sometimes I can't cite a source because that person doesn't want me to tell anyone that they told me. Mm. But that's that's almost that has become par for the course, hasn't it? And obviously we haven't been doing it as long as Slash Film have, but we've We've just become, you know, come to accept that as you know part of the part of the day to day, really. And and there have been stories that that we've run on, on hey you guys, and it has been a case that um, the very next day, or even sooner than that, there is the official denial, and yet you know that it's going to happen. And then of course there is the there's the um, the official the next official statement that comes out, and it but is it, still boring. yeah. But it's created a culture where I don't think your site or my site ever really runs a sourceless story anymore. And that means that we're not really in a position to break news because we get frowned on when we break news and then and then it's tidied away by the studio someplace, you know? Yeah, but you think about all of the ridiculousness surrounding the you know the, the Spider-Man reboot. I, I, bizarrely, there was the story that John Malkovich was going to be Vulture in Spider-Man 4 and it was going to be great and, and, and yep. we ran that story and then literally the that night... Um, Sony tweeted about the fact that it was going to be rebooting who's going back to high school and then of course comes the um, the almost like interminable uh, you know rumors and everything which we, which we do run we, we we choose to run that and we got so sick of it with Captain America because it was a case that you you know you'd put time and an effort into you know working out is Ryan Philippe going to be Captain America is it going to be Channing Tatum and of course you put it up um, and then, of course, it gets it gets totally, you know, it um, it gets totally if, superseded by all. If you've got an email saying something along the lines of, I don't know, an actress from Skins had auditioned for the part of the mm. Black Cat in Spider-Man Four, say, for mm-hmm. example, yeah. would you have run that story? Um, well, we didn't get that email, so we never had to do it. But, but probably you not. Sure. <laughs> well, okay, I didn't get that email. Um, maybe it got um, it got lost. Um, in the hey you guys machine but um certainly I, I think now that when when you have got these these things that that do get sent out um are the studios hoping that you'll run it simply to drum up support for their films do you think that that's what's going on i think there's a lot of people like you and me who actually work close to stuff and and they're happy to tell people Actually, I think that's what's going on. I, I, I know all sorts of stuff that I can't report because I'm sworn to secrecy. And sometimes I know stuff that I can report. But because there's this culture of people going, you know, studios immediately denying it. And then the public sort of saying, oh, you're wrong or you give it a bad name. Sites like Slash Film are now, or some sites like Slash Film are now very reluctant to run this stuff. Mm. Do, you, do you not think as well that um, there's an element now where the studios perhaps are starting to think that you know what we do might be useful in that they can float ideas because i i when this whole captain america thing was going on and and then the whole avengers who was going to direct it 
it almost felt a bit like we were deciding who, not, you know, the writers necessarily, but actually the fans were deciding who was going to be in these films and who was going to direct them, or at least well, yeah, how it also rolled out. rolled out through Nicky Fink, didn't it? And there is one point of view where you could say they were sort of like testing that. But I think the other point of view, and I think this, this one's definitely true, whether the first one is or not, is that we did react. The internet did react. And and uh, Marvel uh, Marvel Disney would have had some idea of what this reaction was. So whether they were explicitly soliciting it, um, I would imagine that reaction did have quite a particular and specific effect on who they did cast. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like that. You know, it, I put it this way: it's it's all a game, isn't it? And we are all you know playing out our various parts in it. But I think in order to try and get wise to it. I think you have to go through a certain amount of, um, you know, you have to learn an awful lot in terms of who to trust and uh, and, and, and what to do. But when you when you bring it back to the to the original thing about the whole three D, um, you know, post production and, and conversion, it does seem incredibly suspicious that all of a sudden three D films, uh, whether you know made for three D or retrofitted for three D, are doing very very well at the box office. Um, and now all of a sudden you you know despite the the backlash for Clash of the Titans and you know, to a lesser extent, Alice in Wonderland. Uh, it does seem a bit that um, the studios will, will will say anything when the bottom line is they they're going to get more money because it's going to be in three D. Um, yeah, I mean, there wasn't. You know, you could say there was a backlash, but it made more money than it cost. It made a profit, so mm. I, I think it probably went past expectations really as well. And considering the amount of markup they got on the three D, I think they made so much more money than they were hoping to even. So. Who cares about a backlash if you're a producer or someone someone it, trying to make money? And it's a backlash in a teacup. Yeah, yeah. So, but the thing is, I you know there are a couple of points here. I wonder if um, it will ever get to the point where um, the backlash is, is is expected, or or rather, you're gonna you know you're gonna have the Green Hornet, you're gonna have uh, the Last Airbender you know, being done in post production, and um, the 3D being done in post production. So we we are gonna go in with the expectation that it's gonna be a bit crap, and it could actually be okay depending on how much they spend on it and who they get to do it. So, um, and, and I also wonder about you know the the average um, moviegoer who doesn't particularly care if it was done or even know if it was done in, in, in post-production, but they probably have heard of Avatar and they probably just, you know, want, you know are interested in, 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 in seeing a film and if it's in 3D, then, then why not? Let's just go and see it. So maybe that's where it is. And also I wonder if people are getting the choice to go and see it because there are some places that I think are not even showing it, you know, the various 3D films in 2D. Um, so you don't even have the choice. You have to go and see it in 3D whether you like it or not, thus forcing potentially more 3D you know, post-production conversions. Um, here's an interesting twist on that. In cinemas across the country right now, because Iron Man has steamed in and taken over lots of the big screens, lots of these films aren't available in 3D anymore. And indeed, some of the chains at some of their city branches aren't showing anything in 3D because they've got a 2D film in the 3D screen. Okay, so make of that what you will, but um, this 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 debate, this question is just going to roll on and on. I think so. Um, uh, we'll end that discussion there. Thanks for that, guys. We're going to move quickly into our rip from the crypt. I'm going to go first because my one's not particularly good this week. Um, not particularly good in the sense that I, 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 this isn't perhaps a surprise given what I've already talked about, but. Um, my my love of, of of all things Chris Morris began with things like On the Hour, which was the radio precursor to the day to day, and um, it's in, it's really really worth um, you know hunting down. I'm sure the BBC have put it out, um, and you may be able to get it through iTunes. I'm not sure, but check out On the Hour, and then also the the day to day, which is out on DVD. As Brendan mentioned earlier, Brass Eye, which was a 
um, a series which ran, I think, uh, early 2000, um, maybe 2001, something like that. Uh, it was um, incredibly good TV. It was incredibly satirical. It was incredibly biting and, and, and cutting in a way, and, and almost you know surrealistic in, 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 in a way that a lot of other things you know aren't. And the writers, the performers that, that he sort of you know grew up with and then made all of his stuff with, um, was uh, you know they, they 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 bring so much to it. And um, so I, I'd highly recommend those. So day to day. And, and, and Brass Eye, um, in particular the, the sort of later um, special, the Peter Geddon special, special which is a brilliant take on the media's obsession with, um, with, with with paedophilia, which is you know just so funny, and it was it was dragged through the you know through the tabloid streets so much, and it was uh, you know thus proving his point brilliantly. Um, but also, the, the, uh, sorry, John, yeah. I don't, I didn't mean to interrupt. I don't really want to interrupt, but the Daily Mail, I've got to mention the Daily Mail because at the time I bought. It's the only time in my life I've ever bought the Daily Mail, and I, I kind of regret it, giving them the money, but the Daily Mail headlines when that episode of Brass Eye came out were just incredible. They were so funny as well. They're almost as good as watching the series. So, <laughs> well, that's I, it, and I think... Anyone, if it. you can Google them and find them somewhere, they're so good. They're so funny. Like yeah, they, I, had, I was in stitches every morning reading the Daily Mail. It was so good. Well, that's it. I mean, I... I um... We we can draw it like a recent a recent example of of, of them and uh, you know against um, a movie or against a TV thing with their reaction to Kickass, which was so over the top. Um, it was it was just brilliant, brilliant comedy. But um, but Chris Morris does really you know um, bring up these feelings in people because a lot of you know people just don't get you know the satire that they they don't get the humor. But one of the things about Brass Eye and, and perhaps more so with with the day to day when it was done, I think it was early nineties. This was before twenty four hour news, and it was before um, a lot of the um, a lot of these sort of you know intense hyperbole you know surrounding a lot of you know news stories as as they are now. It really it it, it kind of looked ahead. And saw what would happen if if we took news reporting to its ridiculous extremes, and it and it does it so well. And of course, you can't see real news after it, you know, seriously at all. So it has that it has that kind of cultural impact. Um, but the the kind of the film, if if, if you are going to check something out, um, he uh, Chris Morris did a um, a, a short film. Uh, in 2003 called um, My Wrongs um, this was a short film, it actually won a, a BAFTA for it and it's an incredibly surreal um, and very dark take on this uh, on this guy who's played by Paddy Constantine who um, is really really good and it's only like 12 minutes long so I'm, I'm, I'm sure you may be able to find it um, I know it was released on DVD it's about this guy and his dog who begins to talk to him and convince him that he's um, you know uh, going to go on trial for all the bad things that he's done in his life it, it's a very very dark piece of work and um it perhaps shows the bridge between the stuff that chris morris did before and the stuff that you find in four lines so it's really really worth um checking out because it is very funny and it is very you know it's very surreal and and, and very dark so guys have you seen uh, the my wrong short film yeah, yeah. It, it came out of a monologue from Blue Jam, didn't it? That was it, yeah, because of course um, Blue Jam was the radio series that he did and then of course there was the TV version which was Jam, is that right? Have I got that the right way around? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, yeah, I've got the DVD of uh, My Wrongs and I can recommend, I, I, I don't know if it's out of print now, but the DVD's really fun, like uh, even though it's just a short film, they it kind of packs a few funny things on there as well. It's like a fake commentary on it and, um, and yeah. things like that, so... Yeah, I mean, they, they've had... They, I don't know if it's Chris Morris himself, I'm assuming it must be, but has had quite a lot of fun with the DVDs. I think Brass Eye's got a commentary that's just ridiculous on one of the episodes. <laughs> I, I think that the one the, the one that I remember right, it was um 
I think he was the, the episode about drugs, and I, and I believe that they got people stoned or something and then recorded a commentary mm-hmm. with them. Uh, Brendan, what about you? Are you a fan of My Wrongs? I am, yeah. It is still available, but not as a standalone DVD, by the way. People can pick it up on the Cinema 16 uh, European Shorts compilation. That's, it's a good disc. It's worth getting it for, for all of the short films on there. I do like My Wrongs. I like uh, Paddy Constantine a, gra- a great deal. I'm not sure it's the most cinematic short film I've ever seen. Um, it really is an illustrated monologue in a sense, really. But um, I do think its successes are, are significant and, it, and it's, it's uh, funny and engaging. And it is, if, if, if you are going to see Four Lions, it is quite a nice, um, almost like a little prologue to just kind of get in your mind. It's, it's, it's much more Chris Morrison than of, of, of his sort of past work than Four Lions is. There's a real maturity between that. So maybe that's the influence of the other writers on Four Lions. In fact, I'm pretty sure it is. But that's my rip from the crypt uh, this week. Um, Craig, do you want to go next for your one? Yeah, um, my one this week um, is a Japanese film from 1973 called Lady Snowblood, Blizzard from the Netherworld. Um, I'm not going to attempt the Japanese title because I'm terrible at pronunciation. But it stars probably, I'm going to kind of overlap myself and keep saying people are my favourite actors and actresses, but Miko Keiji is the star of this and she is one of my favourite actresses. um, I'm a big fan of this 60s and 70s period of Japanese cinema and my walls are adorned with uh, vintage posters and uh, I can see her looking back at me right now from one of the posters. Um, she's absolutely fantastic and the whole film uh, hangs on her performance. Um, have either of you two seen it? Yeah, I've seen it. Uh, of course I haven't seen it. You, you, you guys have got like a far more um, wide-ranging knowledge of cinema than I have. Tell us what it's about, Greg. It's... Uh, it's um, Set in the Meiji era, um, uh, it's set, I think, 1870-something. So my computer crashed a minute ago, and I've lost all my notes. But, um, yeah, it's 1870-something. And there's a woman in prison, and she decides that she wants to exact revenge on the people that put her in prison. So she tries her hardest to get impregnated whilst in prison. And she has a baby, and she wants this baby to purely be for vengeance, uh, she wants to have a son who will go on and he will kill all the people that put her in prison, wrongly put her in prison. Um, unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, she has a daughter instead of her son, um, which isn't her plan. But the daughter grows up to be Miko Cage's character of Lady Snowblood, and she exacts revenge on the officials that put her mother in prison. And its I think it's phenomenal. I absolutely love it. It's um, its pretty violent, uh, be expected i think from that period um some of the sword fighting's just fantastic visually the film is absolutely stunning it's got um quite incredible color coding in the symbolism throughout it's just um there's a constant theme of red and white that if you watch it for the first time is definitely worth paying attention to because it's really cleverly cleverly crafted um and it was a huge huge influence on uh, kill bill a film I didn't particularly like personally. Uh, I think some of the symbolism in the kind of the colours of the red and blue, uh, red and white, pops up again in Kill Bill, especially in the Orenishi scenes. But I think Tarantino misunderstood it, perhaps, or just didn't care because he does it in a really weird way. And I'm not sure. He, I don't know. He doesn't follow through with how well it's done in Lady Snowblood. He's just got a different it's, agenda. He's doing something else. Yeah, I think if if you like Kill Bill definitely go back and watch Lady Snowblood because it, it just it rules it's amazing <laughs> Brendan what do you think give us your take on it 
Uh, it's not half the film Kill Bill is, but I do enjoy it a great deal. Oh, but, man, Brendan, no. no uh, it's twice the film Kill Bill it's is. It's not half the film Kill Bill is. Um, it's not half the film half of Kill Bill is, because let's not forget Kill Bill would have ripped asunder. Um, I do like it. I like it a great deal. It, it's maybe not my favourite film with uh, Craig's beloved actress there. I can't say her name. I, I, I quite like the... Um, I quite like the women in prison sort of uh, scorpion convict ones. You know, you know, like what's it, female prisoner scorpion? Have you seen that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think I'll actually go as far as to say that I maybe I'm a bit too beside with the actress, but I would say check out every film she's been in that you can get on DVD English subtitled because they're all good. And um, there's quite a lot actually, isn't there? There is there's a, good... a fair few. Yeah, I mean, there's four okay. female prisoner convict scorpion films, and there's a sequel to Lady Snowblood as well. Yeah, yeah. Mm. yeah. Um, I, I do. I like it. I like it. I think it is very attractive to look at, and the central idea: this, this, will never, she'll never have love or a family, or she'll never be in a normal context. She exists purely, sort of, as as this sort of tool of revenge, right? This sort of that's that's um, you know a, a very potent and resonant idea. There's a line actually in it, which is, you have a destiny, forget joy, forget sorrow, forget love and hate, forget everything except vengeance. <laughs> okay, so it's something like a great comedy she's, then. Um, she's born out of vengeance, yeah. She wants to kill. <laughs> okay, well that sounds great. Um, just uh, if, if, if you listen to the podcast and you, and you maybe want to find out a bit more, as with um, every one of these uh, podcast episodes, when it goes up on the site, I'll, uh, I'll add all the trailers. Um, to the uh, to the post, and um, we actually got a pretty good uh, response from um, Craig's last recommendation, which is Man from Hong Kong. Um, the director actually listened to the podcast and uh, and wrote a comment on um, on the. Uh, on the on the post um, on the podcast post on the site, which was actually kind of a big deal for us. It was um, really nice because he actually um, listened to what Craig had said about his film and uh, just you know clarified a few points. So yeah, he picked he picked me up on a, a point that I made very offhand and badly, and uh, I thank him for him actually because yeah, he, he was totally right. I yeah, I, I I brushed over the topic a bit too quickly. <laughs> so that was uh, that was Brian Trenchard Smith, and it was great that he um, that he commented. That was uh, that kind of put a smile on our face a lot, you know, a lot. So we're really happy to sort of you know plug um, plug his work again because um, he's a pretty cool guy. So all right, thanks for that, Craig. Brendan, surprise us. Okay, um, I have chosen a comedy film from the late eighties um, because that seems to be quite a nice compatible uh, film for the Hey You Guys. Idiom. It's directed by a man called Chuck Martinez, who never directed another feature film um, for for cinema. And it was run by Paul Harris, who never wrote another feature film for cinema. But Paul Harris now um, is a sort of a Jonathan Creek figure. He makes and devises magic tricks. And he's got one called Little Man coming out at the moment that's got the magic community sort of waiting with, with bated breath. Um, and this film is called Nice Girls Don't Explode. Have either of you seen it? No, oh. <laughs> no, no! I haven't seen it. I I, it. I, I'm kicking myself. Why haven't I seen a film with that title? That's just brilliant. So, Brendan, <laughs> t- tell us about what happens in this film. Well, there's a teenage girl called April, and she's played by Michelle Mayrink, who you'll probably remember from Real Genius. She was the the nerdy inventor girl in Real Genius. Um, and she stopped making films actually shortly after Nice Girls Don't Explode. I don't know. Did everyone leave? A... Did everyone leave the industry after making this film, Brennan? 
<laughs> it looks like it, doesn't it? It looks like it. Um, it's pretty much sort of, apart from John Wells, the producer, this was the first film he's produced, and now he's produced like ER, and he's a huge producer, actually. John Wells is a very big, uh, very so, big uh, uh, Western guy as well. That's it. That's okay. the man. This was where he started. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, Nice Girls Don't Explode, about April, who, uh, whenever she starts feeling a little bit passionate about boys, things burst into flames. Okay. Uh, there's more to it than that. Her mom is played by Barbara Harris, and Barbara Harris also played the mom in the Jodie Foster Freaky Friday. So she's sort of like a, she's sort of a beloved mom of cinema to a certain sort of generation and uh, it's nice to see her momming away here um, and, and um, you've got an early role for uh, Holmes Osborne in it who, uh, who is Donnie Narco's dad but probably the big name on, on the cast and it's not Michelle Leering and I wish it was because I love her um, it's Wallace Shawn um, and he plays a guy called Ellen who people keep mishearing his name and calling him Helen and it makes him really annoyed <laughs> As far as I know, it's only available on DVD in the US if you buy it as part of like a triple feature. But over here, you can get it for like, I don't know, a couple of quid. Um, and it's in the 4-3 aspect ratio. So um, what I believe has happened, we're seeing the full unpicked 35mm frame. So in cinemas, it would have been matted. And then it would have gone to VHS and the top and the bottom of the frame would have been shown. And it sits quite comfortably. I think that... Um, uh, I think that Chuck Martin, as the director, was uh, had his eye on the video market. More well, so. I, I just googled it, Brendan, and it um, according to Box Office Mojo, which I don't know how reliable it's going to be. It made sixty five thousand dollars when it was released. Oh, huge so, money spender then. <laughs> yeah. Oh, brilliant! Okay, well that sounds great. Um, I'm I'm hoping there's there's going to be a trailer I can I can shove up on the there's, slide. There's there's a few actually. There's a really short one. Go for the one around about two minutes though. There's okay. something. It's kind of. It's got a little bit of sort of fifties style to it. Okay. Um, it, a, a part of what the film's, part of how the film works is it sort of parodies these instructional films for teenagers that existed in the fifties, and there is a sort of a, a sort of a bit of a skewering of a certain sort of fifties mentality. If you imagine uh, the way that um, Carrie's mother had a very sort of puritanical point of view, if you soften it off and let it be a bit more like Mrs. C out of the. Um, uh, the happy days. You're sort of uh, you're getting an idea of what April's mom's a bit a bit like. You know, it sort of sits comfortably with hairspray in some sense. Right. But here's the thing. I think Paul Harris's script is wonderful. I think the cast are great. I think Chuck Martinez doesn't know his posterior from his elbow when it comes to directing a film, and the pacing thus is a little off. So, but go with it. The good stuff's good, okay. and, and I'm really fond of it. Well, that's exactly what this is all about. It's it's things that it's things that we love and things that we can push out. So, um, uh, okay, thank you very much for that um, for that recommendation and and for your views and opinions um, throughout the throughout the show. Thanks so much, guys. Um, next week um, it's uh, it's the general election here in the UK, and we're kind of uh, very much looking forward to it. So, our ripped from the crypt uh, next week. Our picks have to be on the sort of theme of, uh, of government or on you know an election, something like that. So um, we're going to try and keep a uh, keep keep a theme. Wow. Wow, okay. So um, <laughs> apparently Brent's got a very good one, but he's not telling us what it is, which is just I won't, right. I might say it's on the theme of government, but you'll know what I mean. <laughs> okay, that sounds like Grant. Okay, we're going to wrap up for uh, for today. We went on for a bit longer, but I think it was all worth it. Thanks very much for your for your views and opinions. Um, please do uh, write in 
um, and comment on the uh, and comment on the show whether or not you like it or not. Um, our email address is mouthoff at heyyouguys.co.uk. And we've had some really really nice comments uh, recently from people, so uh, we really do appreciate you listening, um, and we hope you're enjoying what we're doing. Um, you can also leave um, subscribe in iTunes, um, leave a review for us there. That would be really really great. Um, uh, you can find everything that Craig and I do at heyyouguys.co.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at heyyouguysblog. We're also on Facebook and uh, and all the rest of it. Brendan, you can find writing for slashfilm.com, and there's a, a UK specific column which he puts out every every Friday or so called Slashfilm UK. So do check that out, uh, guys. It's been a lot of fun, and uh, we'll see you rest of you next week. Bye.